There's this show that I like to watch called Pawn Stars. It follows a family-owned pawn shop in Las Vegas. Rick, one of the owners and main star of the show, has seen all sorts of stuff come through his shop, which gives him a pretty wide range of knowledge about cars, coins, guitars, guns, you name it. I was watching one episode recently where an older gentleman brought in what was believed to be a first edition signed copy of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by J.K. Rowling. I have a daughter who is obsessed with the Harry Potter series. In fact, she has the beginning of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone memorized. That would be Analia's dream book. The book appeared in perfect condition. The author's signature on the front page looked to be in order. When Rick asked the man how much he wanted for the book, the man responded, I'd like to get 10000 Whenever they have a question about something's authenticity, especially when it involves a higher dollar amount, Rick and his crew almost always rely on experts to authenticate the item and provide an estimated value. So Rick made a phone call and eventually a young lady came into the store carrying her own first edition signed copy of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. She examined the customer's book and explained what she was looking for. Gold edges on the pages, check. Gold outline on the cover, check. No wear and tear, check. She opened the book to J.K. Rowling's signature, and then she opened her book to reveal a signature on her front page. I know mine is signed by J.K. Rowling, she said, so I'm going to compare the signatures. Right away, she noticed something fishy. The signatures didn't quite match. She explained that forgeries often make the signature too wide or too narrow. This, unfortunately, is a fake, she said. The man asked how much the book was worth, even with the fake signature. Absolutely nothing, she responded. Had the book not been signed, it definitely would have been worth something. But the counterfeit signature actually devalued the book. It's fascinating to watch these experts on Pawn Stars come and evaluate coins, jewelry, firearms, and other collectibles. They always look for very specific details. The exact length of a gun barrel, ridges on the edge of a coin, the minute curvature of a signature. A layman might completely miss it and end up buying something counterfeit. But to the expert... They can spot the little details that make the difference between an authentic item and a forgery. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 51, we've been focusing on the phrase from the Nicene Creed, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Today, we're going to conclude this series by talking about the four marks of the true church. What are those marks? You've probably guessed it. The true church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. I need to make note of something right from the beginning. While normally I try to keep these podcasts to about 17 minutes in length, this one is going to be a little bit longer, but this is something so important on my heart that can't be confined in my typical 17 minutes. I hope that doesn't deter you from listening. If you've listened to previous episodes where I talked about the challenges of the early church, you heard me say that the early church faced three particular dilemmas. There was rampant persecution, often targeting the bishops, the leaders of the church. Then there were people who claimed to be the rightful bishop of a region and tried to convince others that their church was the true church and they had the apostolic authority. Then they would use their influence to spread heresies. Let's use our imagination for a second. Let's imagine you're living in Rome. The year is 99. The Emperor Trajan has just executed Clement, the Bishop of Rome, the third Pope after Peter. It was determined that Evaristus would be his replacement, and you've been given a mission. You've been instructed to take a letter from Rome all the way over to Ephesus in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, to deliver the news. The journey is a perilous 2,000 kilometers, some 1,200 miles. The pastor of the church of Ephesus, assuming he's still alive, is the apostle John. Clement was a disciple of John. And so if John is still alive, he needs to know what happened to Clement. 
but also the churches need to know that there's a new pope. You make the trek starting by land, crossing through the hills and mountains of Italy. You board a ship, stopping at Greek ports along the way. After weeks, you arrive in Ephesus. How are you going to find the church? This is a time of persecution. You don't want to reveal who you are or put other Christians in peril. And it's not like the church is going to have a building with a giant sign that says, The Church at Ephesus. They likely meet in secret. You remember some stories that Clement and those who knew the apostles conveyed to you. So you find someone that looks safe and ask if they know a man named John, a Jew from Galilee who speaks with an Aramaic accent. The person knows of John, but hasn't seen John for a while. So he takes you to a person that he knows is John's friend. Are you a friend of John's? You ask. He looks like he doesn't trust you. I have news from Rome, you say. His eyebrows raise. He wants more information. From Clement. The Bishop of Rome, the man confirms. Now you know you're talking to the right person. I'm looking for the church here in Ephesus, you tell him. I am part of the church, he assures you. But you need to be sure. Are you a part of the church started by Jesus? The one that the Jewish people call Adrek, he confirms. Adrek means the way. It's what the church was called prior to being called Christian or Catholic. The church in communion with Rome, you ask? Where Peter and Paul last ministered, he says. The one started by the apostles, you ask? Yes. He's grown a little impatient, but at the same time, he understands your need to be absolutely sure. I remember when Paul visited and stayed with us, he says. John was our pastor for years before he was arrested and exiled. The answers tell you that this is the true church, the intended recipient of the letter from the church in Rome. I wanted you to do that imagination exercise with me because I think we greatly oversimplify life in the early church. We may think of the persecutions, but do we think of the persecutions on top of the challenges of communication and the heresies and fake leaders? All of those questions asked to the stranger were meant to determine if the person you were talking to was not only safe, but also part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In episode 64, I talked about the story of Novation, who used the Pope's absence to seize power and claim that he was the rightful Pope. Churches were confused on who to follow because it took a while to disseminate that Novation was a fraud. Churches were hesitant to follow one or the other pope because to follow the fraudulent pope would mean they were no longer part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. At the Council of Nicaea, the church fathers gave us four marks to look for in a church. Four marks to determine which was the true church, the church started by Jesus entrusted to Peter, the church whose bishops were ordained in an unbroken line of succession that led back to the apostles. So in the Nicene Creed, they added, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Look for those four marks and you will have found the legitimate church. Those experts that visit the Las Vegas pawn shop to authenticate items know exactly which marks to look for. To us, it seems very detailed, but for them, they know which criteria can quickly determine whether something is authentic or not. Last year, I bought an older Toyota 4Runner. I talked to my wife's cousin who was a car expert, and he said, look under the chassis to make sure it's not full of rust. Make sure it's not blowing white smoke. Look under the hood and make sure you don't see oil everywhere. Now, if he was there, he would have examined that car with a fine-tooth comb. But me, I don't know anything about cars, so he gave me the basic things to look for. The same is true with the church fathers when they told us to look for the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
Is it the one church in communion with all the other churches? Can it trace its existence back to Pentecost in Jerusalem? Is it part of the one church or did it break off and start its own thing? Is it professing orthodoxy and using the real gospel accounts and letters by the apostles? Or is it making up some unheard of doctrine? Is it part of the universal church and can the church trace its existence back to the apostles? And are its leaders ordained in an unbroken line that traces back to the apostles? This is what it means to be one holy Catholic and apostolic. And throughout the past episodes, we've read quotes from the church fathers explaining what they meant by those four words. These are the marks of the authentic church. As we've talked about in previous episodes, there's lots of churches that want to claim that they are little c Catholic churches or have the apostolic succession. But when you start digging, you discover that they aren't part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church as defined by the apostles. I had a friend who visited a church and she was telling me about her experience. She said that she attended an American Catholic church. Now, I had never heard of such a thing called the American Catholic church, but the Catholic church is a huge tent. So maybe this was another particular church. I just wasn't aware of that fit inside of the six rites that make up the Catholic Church. She explained that the priest was wonderful and welcoming, and he said that they even had a special dispensation for non-members to receive Holy Communion. I had never heard of such a thing. A special dispensation to receive communion even if you weren't in communion with the Catholic Church? So I started researching, and sure enough, when I looked for the four marks, the authenticity of this church quickly unraveled. It wasn't in communion with the one Catholic church and the Pope in Rome. It claimed that it was apostolic, but its founder had been excommunicated. Therefore, it lacked the valid orders necessary to consecrate Holy Communion and ordain priests. And it veered widely from the 2,000-year-old tradition regarding who could receive communion. Just asking those four basic questions, is it one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, led me to discover that this church was not authentically Catholic. Here's what St. Augustine in 397 had to say about these four marks. Quote, There are many other things which most properly can keep me in the Catholic Church's bosom. The unanimity of peoples and nations keeps me here. Her authority inaugurated in miracles, nourished by hope, augmented by love, and confirmed by her age keeps me here. The succession of priests from the very see of the Apostle Peter, to whom the Lord after his resurrection gave the charge of feeding his sheep, up to the present episcopate, keeps me here. And last, the very name Catholic, which not without reason belongs to this church alone, in the face of so many heretics, so much so that, although all heretics want to be called Catholic, when a stranger inquires where the Catholic Church meets, None of the heretics would dare to point out his own basilica or house. End quote. I was reflecting on St. Augustine's words here regarding the four marks of the church. I thought about some of the rather famous Protestant efforts to try and define a healthy church. For example, Rick Warren, founder of Saddleback Church in Southern California, wrote a best-selling book called The Purpose Driven Church, in which he states that the four purposes of the church are evangelism, worship, discipleship, and ministry. Mark Devers, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist, founded Nine Marks, where he states that the nine marks of a healthy church are preaching biblical theology, the gospel, conversion, evangelism, membership, discipline, discipleship, and ministry. I think that Rick Warren and Mark Devers have something valuable here. A healthy church needs all of those functions, but these are functions, not marks of authenticity. Functions can change, 
But the markings are in essence the DNA. Since before the 4th century, the marks of the true church have been four things. It's one, it's holy, it's Catholic, and it's apostolic. These were the words penned in the Nicene Creed in the aftermath of the Council of Nicaea. I was reflecting on my journey from Protestant Christianity to Catholicism. You know, in the Western Protestant world, particularly the United States, people choose churches based on a particular hierarchy set of needs and desires. In rare cases, someone will choose a church because of the denomination. For example, I grew up Seventh-day Baptist. There's no way in the world my family would have ever gone to a church that wasn't Seventh-day Baptist. So our options were super limited. Some people are committed Presbyterians, not just any Presbyterians, but a particular branch like PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America. Where I grew up, if you were committed to being a PCA, there were a number of different options within a short distance. You could choose which PCA church you like better for whatever reason. But I think I can safely say, particularly with non-denominational churches being the largest segment of Protestant churches in America, that most people, at least in the U.S., choose their church based on what their church has. They are looking for a personal hierarchy of desires or needs, and denomination means little to nothing to them as long as the church fits the bill. When I moved to Utah five years ago, I visited a number of churches during the weeks I was here prior to my family arriving. I took note of the style of music, the sermon, the personality of the pastor, but the most important thing to me was the youth program. We were moving our kids 2,000 miles away from their friends and community back east. It was important to find a place where they could make friends. I told my wife that I think I found the church for us. The music was good. The sermon was decent. There were really no red flags. But the thing that this church had that the other churches didn't was a large youth population and an active youth and kids program. That's what mattered most to me at the time. In fact, I was willing to tolerate a lot of things for that one particular facet. If you listen to my story in episode 11, when I began discerning Catholicism, I started off with a list of desires. I was looking for a diverse but unified church, a global church, a church that dives into church history, etc. That eventually led me to the Catholic church, and where I live, there's only a couple of options within a reasonable drive. Go to California or somewhere in the Northeast, and there's all sorts of Catholic churches closer than my closest Catholic church. If you ask me today, why am I Catholic? My answer wouldn't be because of the music or the pastor. It wouldn't be because of one of Rick Warren's purposes or Mark Dever's nine marks. It would be this, because it is part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I don't just attend a Catholic church. I am Catholic. And I am Catholic because this is the church that Jesus founded. When Jesus told Simon, your name is now Peter, meaning rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail— I believe that church still exists today, what we call the Catholic Church in communion with the Pope in Rome. Sometimes we go to the local Catholic mission 12 minutes away. Sometimes we go to the parish 30 minutes away. There are very different experiences with respect to the decor, the music style, the preaching, etc. But in a sense, they are both the same because they are both part of the one holy Catholic Church. The Eucharist, blessed by the priests in the apostolic line of succession, is ultimately the center of each of their masses. Allow me to say something really important, and this isn't to suggest that Jesus doesn't work in non-Catholic churches. I'm not saying that at all. I certainly think he does. I know Protestant pastors who say, if I wasn't a pastor, I would be Catholic. The reason they aren't Catholic is because they believe that God has called them to pastor that particular church, and I can't argue with them. Who am I to say what God has called someone to do? But while Jesus works through all kinds of churches, I think there's one church that Jesus will move heaven and earth to keep alive, and that is the Catholic Church. 
I've seen lots of churches come and go in my lifetime. There's a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which details the events of how an evangelical church called Mars Hill rose to become a megachurch under a pastor named Mark Driscoll, and then it became a network of megachurches before a colossal collapse and an official closing. There's no more Mars Hill Church or churches. When I discerned the Catholic Church, I studied the best of popes and the worst of popes. I considered many of the scandals throughout history, child sex abuse scandals, popes that lavishly spent the church's treasury, all sorts of unsavory things. You know what conclusion I came to? There's no earthly reason why the Catholic Church should exist today. Some of its most prominent leaders have done everything to sabotage the Catholic Church. How it exists today and really how it's the largest and fastest growing church today is only by divine intervention. I feel about the Jewish people the same way I do about the Catholic Church. How in the world do the Jewish people exist today? Think about it. They were expelled from their land in 70 AD, not to return until 1948. What people group continues existing for 1900 years, dispersed without a common home? Consider the American Indians who were expelled from their lands in the past 200 years. Some tribes have gone completely extinct. 1900 years in continuing to retain their identity despite being spread out across the world is an anomaly. Obviously, God is invested in keeping his people alive. In the same way, the fact that the Catholic Church exists today is only because of Jesus' promise to Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus has protected and preserved his bride and will do so to the end. Do I think the Catholic Church is perfect? Heck no, far from it. I think we can learn a lot from what Rick Warren and Mark Devers highlight as healthy functions. In fact, in our parish, as wonderful as it is, the thing we lack the most is a youth program. If I were still in my Protestant mindset, I would have disregarded our church on account of the lack of youth and youth programming. But all of those programs and all of those functions that Rick Warren and Mark Devers point out are functions. Functions or how we function can change. What can't change is the church's DNA. I know a couple of people who think that in this podcast, I focus too much on the positives and ignore some of the negatives of the Catholic church. I totally get it. But the point of this podcast is to talk about the ideals of Catholicism rather than focus on the way people fail to live up to those ideals. However, I want to tell you three things that really frustrate me sometimes about being Catholic. First, I get really frustrated and angry with priests who have abused children. It destroys those people's lives, and in the end, the victims often want nothing to do with God or any religion. And who can blame them? Those priests are basically trying to lead those victims by the hand to hell. What also frustrates me about this is that when I talk about the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Catholic Church, anyone who wants to disagree needs only to point to the many instances of priests who have acted hypocritically and have abused children and bishops who have ignored that abuse. Secondly, I get really frustrated by leaders in the church who make up their own theology and morality. There's a couple of really popular priests that come to mind who will remain unnamed, who equivocate on clear-cut moral issues and make up their own weird theology. It bothers me because they have sworn obedience to the magisterium only to contradict the magisterium on settled matters of faith and morality. I think they're hoping to appeal to people and attract them into the church, but it's disingenuous because they're trying to trick people into thinking the Catholic church and Catholic faith is something that it's not. 
Third, I get really frustrated with lay people that want to play at Catholicism without being truly Catholic. That might be particularly politically minded folks that claim to be Catholic, but then celebrate and promote sins like homosexuality and abortion on one side and extortion and neglect of the poor on the other. It's also parents who want their kids to be baptized and confirmed, but will never don the doors of the parish again, except for maybe Christmas and Easter. All three of these groups make a mockery of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church and are not only putting their souls in serious jeopardy, but are also putting the souls of those that trust them in jeopardy as well. These people aren't the Catholic church, nor do they define the Catholic faith as much as they or the media would like to think otherwise. They are the Judas Iscariots who betray Jesus and their followers, or the rich young rulers who walk away when Jesus tells them what's required to inherit eternal life. They are not the reasons I am Catholic nor are they the reasons I am not Catholic. The reason I am Catholic is because the Catholic Church is the church that Jesus founded and that Jesus refuses to abandon and let die. Its DNA is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, and thus its calling is to grow in unity, holiness, Catholicity, and uphold the apostolic succession and apostolic traditions. As such, my mission in whatever God calls me is to help his church grow towards these ends. There will always be detractors from this mission, detractors inside the church that try to steer the church away from holiness, as well as detractors that try to create schism. But throughout the history of the church, where there have been detractors, there have been saints faithfully praying, serving, teaching, and leading towards greater holiness. The Bible tells us that God judges all of our works. The worthless works burn like straw, while the righteous works are retained and rise from the flames. And isn't that so true with respect to the Catholic Church? What is left of the legacies of those popes that led unfaithfully? Nothing. We don't even remember their names. But think of those like Pope John Paul II, Edith Stein, Pope Paul VI, Teresa of Lisieux, Ignatius of Loyola, Rose of Lima, Augustine of Hippo, Teresa of Avila, Thomas Aquinas. These are the pillars of the church that remain standing when the dust settles. Why? Because they are the ones who lived lives bringing the church back to its foundation on Christ as the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.